0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to uh, this year's Emden Lecture. Uh, The Emden Lecture is named, obviously, after Alfred Brotherson Emden, who died in 1979, but was principal of St. Edmund Hall from 1929 to 1951. And he published widely on matters historical, Particularly the medieval church. And his generous gifts and lifelong association with the hall are remembered in rooms named after him, but also in events such as this one, the Emden Lecture. Um, As principal today, I want to welcome you to this lecture, which we had to postpone sadly um, from last term due to the death of a fellow, um, Sir David Yardley, and so it's with great pleasure that I want tonight to welcome Professor Peter Mandler from Cambridge. Um, Peter is President of the Historical Society, Um, he's going to deliver this evident lecture of 2014 as the crisis of the meritocracy, education and democracy in modern Britain, and we'll await some insights and observations. Peter, thank you very much for coming to give this lecture.
1: Thank you, Principal, and uh, thank you to uh, the entire Seneca Hall uh, community for uh, inviting me to give this lecture. It's a pleasure to be back at my alma mater, sadly not this college, uh, but at least this uh, great university where I was an undergraduate. Uh, almost 40 years ago now. My talk this evening uh, addresses one aspect of Britain's transition to mass education since the Second World War, which is the subject of a book I'm working on, a sorely neglected and misunderstood subject, and thus a topic on which you can read all kinds of nonsense in the newspapers uh, or, God help us, online. It's about time that historians took this subject seriously, not least because, and this will form part of my argument, Education has been rising steadily up the list of priorities of our fellow citizens for the past half century. And yet we persist in thinking of it as a kind of marginal subject of interest only to educationalist anoraks. And when I told a colleague recently that I was working on the history of education, he said to me gloomily, Well, there goes your career. <laughs> Which is an odd sentiment, since my career is by any calculation nearer the end of, uh, than the beginning. <laughs> And odder still, I think, for what it conveys about the value historians attach to the subject as compared to the value everyone else attaches to it. So the advent of mass education seems like an excellent subject to address in a lecture by an historian aimed at a non-specialist audience. I have to say that looking around the room, I can spot a terrifying number of specialists (laughs) in this non-specialist audience. And to them, I must make a particular apology Uh, I did try to warn as many of you as possible, but I was originally, um, as the principal noted, uh, scheduled to give this lecture in June. Um, And um, here we are in November, and the the academic paper upon which this lecture is based is just appearing in print as we speak. Some of you who are, I hope, uh, fellows of the Royal Historical Society may even have had it slip through their letterbox uh, within the last 48 hours. I hope you haven't read it yet, because you'll hear uh, a lot of things that you would read there. But for those of you who want to go and peruse my footnotes and challenge my uh, sources, you now have the opportunity, uh, terrifyingly, um, right on your coffee table. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, I hope uh, that, as I say, for me, this is the beginning of a bigger project, and I'm I'm, I'm very keen to get um, feedback uh, from all comers, and I hope that the subject will be of interest to all of you, whether or not you have the opportunity to read my learned disquisition. Now, admittedly, the most appropriate subject uh, or aspect of this story in a lecture dedicated to A.B. Emden, who devoted his entire life to this college and this university, would be the rise of mass participation in higher education, and that does form part of my brief to myself. If you're a glutton for punishment, I invite you to London on Friday, where I'll be giving a lecture on the rise of mass higher education for the Royal Historical Society. Oh, all right, if you must know, Gustav taught lecture theater UCL at 5.30. <laughs> but because I owe that lecture to the RHS, uh, I will offer you this evening the other, and earlier and more important part of the story, the development of universal secondary education since the Butler Act of 1944, as we mark its 70th anniversary. I should say at the outset that I do not regard, as as many historians uh, who have written on this subject have regarded, uh, Britain as some kind of uh, special case uh, in terms of the rise of universal secondary education. And, uh, And still less do I regard Britain as a basket case, as many historians seem to assume, to cite the standard work distinctly backward by comparison with other leading Western states. It's perfectly true that Britain came relatively late and haltingly to universal primary education. Prussia had compulsory attendance laws from 1763. France legislated for universal provision from 1833. And Britain did not provide free and universal primary education until 1880. But comparison on the basis of formal provision is misleading. The Prussian state was unable to enforce its allegedly compulsory laws and did not provide free and universal primary education until 1868. France did not provide free and universal primary education until 1882. So these three states were roughly in sync by the late 19th century. More importantly, the timing of universal primary education bears surprisingly little relationship to the timing of universal secondary education, because they were largely distinct systems. The advent of universal primary education in the 19th century was driven by nation and state building, as nation states sought to make workers into citizens by inculcating literacy in the national language and a basic education in civics and patriotism aimed at small children before they entered the workforce at 11 or 12. Universal secondary education had quite different drivers. In the 19th century, a strict divide was erected by most states between primary and secondary education. The first was civic education for all. The second was about elite selection and training for around 2 to 3% of the population. There was no need to connect primary and secondary education, as elites did not use state primary education, and the masses did not use state secondary education. Indeed, elites had an interest in maintaining a barrier between the two, so as to limit the inroads of the masses into the elite to a manageable trickle. Almost the sole exception to this rule was the United States, which in the 19th century did have an unusual commitment, at least by lip service, to social mobility. When, in the early 20th century, states began to extend access to secondary education, their motives were driven, in large part, by novel democratic considerations— These considerations were both humane and economic. On the one hand, most Western states, and increasingly today non-Western states, have viewed education as about the development and socialization of the individual. Education has increasingly assumed the role of religion in providing for the moral and spiritual needs that are generally assumed to be intrinsic to the human condition. On the other hand, 20th century states have also looked to the economic benefits of education to advance the interests both of individuals and of nations in an increasingly competitive economic environment. Both of these approaches, fortified by the advent of democracy, have tended to uh, lead to universal, standardized, and rationalized systems. Over the course of the 20th century, therefore, secondary education has had a tendency everywhere to become less elite-oriented and more democratic. And in this development, Britain did not start out, nor will I argue did it become, backward. Before the Second World War, Britain had the latest school-leaving age and the most years of compulsory schooling of any European state. All other countries stopped compulsory schooling at 14 or earlier, and none required the nine years of compulsory primary schooling from 5 to 14 that Britain required before the Butler Act. Access to secondary education was limited everywhere. But in the
0: 1930s, Britain probably offered as much as
1: France and Germany, and by the 1950s and 60s, a good deal more than that. Britain was not the slow, backward educator in this period, 60 years behind its neighbors, as it's often been portrayed, it was rather where you'd expect it to be, comparable to other northern and western European states and well ahead of the southern European states. So like most of its chief European competitors, Britain started out in the first half of the 20th century with a state secondary system aimed at elite training and ended up in the second half with a universal system. How this happened and why are the questions I hope to answer. The conventional view, I suppose, if there is a conventional view, is that Britain moved from an elite training system in the 19th century, an aristocracy, you might say, to an elite selection system, a meritocracy, in the 20th. Meritocracy, allegedly the dominant ethos for most most of the 20th century, sought to add or replace uh, hereditary elites with a selection from other classes based on merit or intellectual aptitude.
0: I will argue instead
1: that the idea of meritocracy as applied to secondary education was short-lived and inherently unstable. It had only a tentative appeal before the Second World War when secondary education was still confined to a minority. Only about uh, 20% of uh, children were educated in secondary schools before the Second World War. And most people who um, cared at all preferred that minority to be selected on merit rather than by wealth or birth. So there was a meritocratic moment, I suppose, just before the war. But after the Second World War, when secondary education became universal, meritocracy began to fall apart. Democracy quickly became the ruling principle instead, and meritocratic selection was almost immediately doomed. Until secondary education became universal, both of the main political parties were ambivalent about how to organize it. Labour's dilemma was particularly sharp and poignant. On the one hand, its highest hope, voiced by R. H. Tawney, notably in the uh, policy document he wrote for the Labour Party in 1922, was for a single system, a progressive course of general education for all children 11 to 16. On the other hand, especially on the ground, Labour was dedicated to improving access for working class children to the existing network of secondary schools, that is the fee-paying grammar schools, which from 1907 were enabled in return for government subsidy to provide at least 25% of their uh, places free to children who had graduated from state elementary schools and passed a qualifying exam. These free placers, always a minority of the grammar school population, um, on the whole were higher academic achievers than the fee payers. And so public investment in them was seen to be both meritocratic and democratic and a considerable source of local pride. Central government also funded its own free places and a special group of grammar schools, the so-called direct grant schools. Labor-controlled local authorities spent much of these cash strapped decades before the war laboriously building up a supply of free places to meet a growing demand for secondary education amongst their constituents. Middlesbrough, for example, acquired one existing grammar school and opened two more, and by 1938 was providing 75% of these places for free to children who had gone to state primary schools, nine-tenths of them from the lower middle and working classes. I mean, that was unusual in providing such a high proportion of their places for free, but it shows zeal for that kind of expansion in a place like Middlesbrough, which could hardly afford it. Although in this period secondary education was extended uh, to only a small minority and still mostly benefited fee payers, in places like Middlesbrough, the expansion of grammar schools was aimed at poorer children and built up a cohort of labor movement leaders who had reason to be grateful to grammar schools, figures like Ellen Wilkinson of Manchester, daughter of a cotton operative, who won scholarships to school and university and ended up as Minister of Education in 1945. So labor was ambivalent about a system that benefited some working class children, but not all. The conservatives had different grounds for ambivalent. Their leadership continued to think of secondary education as elite training rather than elite selection. For them, elite selection happened elsewhere, to a great extent in heredity. It didn't require an artificial ladder of opportunity such as education was meant to provide. They did not use state secondary education much themselves. In 1938, three-quarters of conservative MPs were privately educated, and over two-thirds still in 1950. They had accepted the ladder of opportunity largely for utilitarian reasons, the need to recruit and train more intellectually skilled labor, and partially to rebuild social solidarity after the general strike. But they were anxious that the adhesion of these new recruits not impair the traditional elite training functions of grammar schools to fee payers. The purpose of secondary education was to promote the leadership qualities of a minority, and while some saw the expansion of grammar schools as enriching the social elite with new leadership qualities, others were concerned that the grammar schools might dilute rather than enrich. As late as 1951, the conservative education spokesperson, Florence Horsbrook, was insisting that in education, the crucial things are the uncommon things. If we are to have good education, we must look to the differences in ability, rather than try to get children on to one common ground as one common child. I would infinitely rather have privilege than have children all of one sort. Given this ambivalence on both sides, it's not surprising that the advent of secondary education for all in the Butler Act of 1944 amounted to a compromise. As early as the Haddo Report of 1926, the first uh, really serious government inquiry into secondary education, a bipartite solution of grammar schools for the minority and a new type of secondary school for the majority, known as the modern school, was mooted. Little came of this uh, during the interwar period, but social and political change in wartime accelerated the policy process considerably. And in 1944, the Tory whips, in the words of a future Tory education minister, welcomed the prospect of a bill which, unlike Beveridge, entailed no large immediate economic commitment. That itself speaks volumes, it seems to me. Uh, Commanded a wide range of moderate and progressive all-party support and could be counted on to keep the parliamentary troops thoroughly occupied, providing endless opportunity for debate without any fear of breaking up the government. The Butler Act of 1944 was therefore purposefully vague. It required local authorities to provide free secondary education for all, but it did not specify what kind, only requiring that provision be suited to different ages, abilities, and aptitudes. While local authorities were free to experiment with all kinds of secondary education, Multilateral, uh, what we now know as all-ability or comprehensive schools, technical schools, middle schools, and the like, the system almost universally adopted was the bipartite one. This permitted local authorities to retain and expand their carefully nurtured grammar schools, now with 100% free places selected purely on merit, and to cater to the remaining 75% of the age cohort with new, cheaper, secondary, modern schools, often converted primary schools. This was the model that had been promoted by the Board of Education since the 1920s, and that was now aggressively promoted by the coalition government. It was inherited by the labor government in 1945, and gingerly defended at first by Ellen Wilkinson, the grammar school girl, now Minister of Education. In these early post-war years, a delicate truce was maintained. Labor had got secondary education for all, somewhat on the cheap. The Tories had preserved elite selection and training. And in austerity Britain, local authorities had little room to breathe. But this truce did not last long, whatever the conventional view. In reality, support for meritocracy was actually very fragile, and its supposed triumph short-lived. It's not perhaps surprising that labor, in opposition from 1951, began to move to the left and retreat from its initial support for the bipartite system. Labor Party conference began to pass motions in favor of comprehensive schools as early as 1950. More surprisingly, the conservatives were steadily pushed in the same direction. To understand why, we need to consider some underlying social and attitudinal changes that did not necessarily register immediately on the front benches of the major political parties, but registered everywhere else. It's often said that education was a quiet area through the Cold War, uh, with a consensus behind meritocracy and the bipartite system, either because of a pact between the party leaderships for a paternalist policy that didn't ask the public what it wanted, or possibly because meritocracy was genuinely popular. But I'm going to argue that to the contrary, meritocracy and the bipartite system were from the outset a very uncertain popularity and became increasingly unpopular with a rapidly mounting intensity of public opinion and growing mobilization of the grassroots over the course of the 1950s. There is a clue to this fact. In the the fact um, that the very word meritocracy was coined by a critic, Michael Young, whose dystopian satire The Rise of the Meritocracy depicted a populist uprising against educational selection in the year 2034 that was, in fact, already well underway at the time of publication in 1958. The wellspring of this shift in popular sentiment against meritocracy was the growth of educational aspiration. We've already seen some evidence of this in the 1930s when hard-pressed local authorities like Middlesbrough nevertheless put a lot of money into grammar school expansion in the 1930s. In doing so, they were recognizing growing public appetite for free secondary education as opportunities for better paid and more secure employment in the clerical and retail sectors expanded, and mothers especially sought education for their children as an alternative to entry into the manual labor market facilitated by fathers' workplace connections. The limited familiarity of working-class families with grammar schools put a cap on this aspiration, but it hardly quenched it. And the advent of universal secondary education from 1944 very much fueled it. Now education is viewed, like health, as a universal public service. And parents of all classes came to seek the best teachers in schools for their children, just as they came to seek the best doctors in hospitals. I mean, no one was calling in 1945 for a two-tier health service. And I think actually no one was calling for a two-tier education service either. Now the paradox lies in the fact that the best schools were widely identified by all classes as the grammar schools. This association had already been established before the war, when grammar schools were effectively the only secondary schools, by definition the best schools, the ones that gave access to non-manual occupations. This association was strengthened after the war by growing familiarity with and aspiration towards non-manual occupations in what was the peak period of social mobility in British history, as non-manual occupations grew from under one-third to nearly one-half of the labor force. As a result, every social survey into educational aspiration from the early 1950s to the mid-1960s showed that the majority of parents of all classes sought grammar school places for their children in preference to As one Bethel-Green housewife put it to social investigators in the early 50s, the ordinary, that is, the secondary modern school. In no poll did preference for secondary modern schools rise much above 10%. While these preferences for grammar schools were stronger among professional and managerial parents, who just simply knew a lot more about secondary education, uh, even amongst the lowest levels of the working class, most parents who had any preference at all for their children said they preferred grammar schools. The most frustrated of all parents were those in the lower, middle, and upper working classes, where appetite for grammar school was strong and disappointment common. Two-thirds of parents in these groups said that their hopes for grammar schools for their children had been frustrated. So these same parents who favored grammar schools for their children were also violently opposed to the 11 class exam and selection. It was the supposedly unaspirational working classes who were the most opposed to selection because they were the most likely to fail at it and lack the alternative of private education. In other words, support for grammar schools did not mean support for meritocracy, but rather support for the best schools, grammar schools, for all children. No wonder that in the debates over comprehensivization, the conservatives took the position that they were opposed to the destruction of grammar schools, a very popular policy, and later that they sought grammar schools for all, an even more popular policy <laughs> This latter slogan taken up by both Gateskill and Wilson, and much derided at the time, expressed very well indeed the preferences of the majority of voters, and particularly swing voters. This current in public opinion against selection at 11 plus and towards grammar schools for all has not been widely recognized, or where recognized has not been much admired, either by contemporary pundits or by historians. It's amazing how often you can read the pollsters and the social investigators themselves sifting through the results of their polls, basically just laughing uh, at these apparently contradictory choices that people were making. And so attention is focused instead on the movement of technical and professional opinion against selection at 11 plus. Sociologists who revealed the class differences behind 11 plus success, psychologists who argued that intelligence was not solely an inherent quality but could be acquired even after age 11, teachers, educational professionals, and educational lobby groups who were acutely aware of the mistakes and injustices rendered by selection, and ultimately a series of government inquiries, the Crowther, Newsom, and Ploughton reports. But these sections of opinion are emphasized because they tend to be the only ones studied. Their actors create articulate and easily accessible texts and organizations. It has been harder to capture or even to locate parental opinion at the grassroots, yet it was there, highly vocal, emotionally charged as one contemporary admitted, even insurgent. The Catholic Archbishop of Liverpool gave it a name, the Revolt of the Mums. And it made a direct impact on politicians. This pressure registered first where it mattered most, not on the political parties, but on the local authorities, who under the Butler Act had responsibility for the provision and organization of secular education. I mean, they could do whatever they wanted. The local authorities had another source of pressure in the 1950s, which had to be reconciled with the demand for high-quality schools, and that was a demographic pressure. Often when I talk about the subject and I turn to demography, I can see the eyelids of the audience gently lowering. Uh, but I think it, in, when you're talking about schools, it's actually a lot more significant than it's given credit for. Because the advent of the secondary modern school had come at a time when demographic pressure was low. There were very few primary, new primary school age children having been conceived during the war. <coughs> with the baby boom from 1946, the pressure began to grow, and the number of school-aged children swelled, requiring new schools and new housing. New states with new schools had to be built. And in these circumstances, it became increasingly difficult for local authorities, even conservative ones, to introduce new, selective schools. Edward Boyle, um, who was a junior education uh, minister for the conservatives during uh, the, the 50s, um, said afterwards, I cannot remember or recall a single conservative with any interest in the subject who really favored building new grammar schools and secondary modern schools side by side in an expanding housing state. <laughs> in fact, it was rural authorities, mostly conservative, who had the most difficulty building new selective schools in thinly populated areas where selective schools would be too small or require too large a catchment. Thus, early experiments in comprehensive schools came not only from big ideologically committed authorities like London or Coventry, but also from places like Anglesey, the Isle of Man, Westmorland, Dorset, and West Sussex, as well as on new estates built by local authorities everywhere. Of course, the national parties sensed the power of public opinion on the ground, but they preferred to leave this tricky problem for as long as possible to the local authorities.
0: In Whitehall and Westminster, they did their best to dodge or muffle
1: growing unhappiness over selection. Officials at of the Ministry of Education expressed the view in 1960 that selection by means of the 11 plus could not survive the day when parents' wishes would gain a hearing. But parents' wishes were already gaining a hearing. And their electoral addresses aimed at local rather than national concerns. This is a bygone day when uh, all uh, parliamentary candidates issued electoral addresses to their constituency. Um, and in those addresses, parliamentary candidates were showing a growing tendency to acknowledge educational issues under half of all electoral addresses in 1950 and 1951 mentioned education, 72% in 1955, over 90% by 1959. So much for the quiet period of the Cold War. All prospective MPs, labor and conservative, new education, now mattered much more to the electorate even than the health service. Education was at the top of the list of domestic issues at the end of the 50s. And those conservative MPs directly concerned with education policy knew this better than most. As Minister for Education for much of the 50s, David Eccles tried at first to placate public opinion by pouring money into the education service to raise the standard of the secondary moderns. Education spending as a proportion of GNP doubled from 2% to 4%. Pupil teacher ratios fell, and secondary moderns were encouraged to offer O levels to their students previously confined to grammar schools. But the dislike of selection was now far too strong to assert the fabled parity of esteem between moderns and grammars. Even as secondary moderns improved, the cap on grammar school places left more frustrated parents. There were no more working class children in grammar schools in 1961 than there had been in 1950. And public opinion was at boiling point. A particularly piquant situation arose in Leicestershire, where the conservative authority had opted for comprehensive middle schools, which postponed selection to 16, which was after the uh, school-leaving age while the labor-controlled city of Leicester stuck to its grammars because they had been building up free places in grammar schools since the early part of the century. And on one occasion, when a routine meeting was called to discuss boundary changes, local government boundary changes, the boundary commissioners were astonished to find that thousands of people had turned up. As one of the barristers present recalled, the vast majority were parents, and they were hopping mad because in the city, they had secondary and grammar schools, whereas the county had comprehensive schools. Some of them had sold their homes in Leicester in order to get away from the city education system of the 11 plus and to give their children the advantages of a comprehensive school education. And now they were being threatened with being put back in the city again by the boundary changes. Of course, I had always known that the 11 plus was not very popular, but I had never known before to what extent it was both hated and feared. Conservative education ministers from Eccles on down knew full well as early as the mid-50s that selection was doomed. It was most unpopular precisely amongst their target voters, the aspirational lower, middle, and upper working class parents who were changing Britain from a pyramidal to a diamond shaped social structure. Though not explicit in party policy, conservative government practice shifted to preparing upgraded secondary moderns for comprehensiveization following the practice already adopted by conservative controlled county councils such as Hampshire and West Sussex. Eccles and his successor Edward Boyle encouraged experiments that post- postponed selection Um, to uh, uh, 14 or 16, as in Leicestershire or Southampton. They began to talk the universalist, individualist language of education that was already the new common sense. Secondary schooling not as elite selection and training, but as the normal way in which all individuals would equip themselves equally for life and work. And it was this conservative government that commissioned the Crowden, Newsom, and Plowden reports that gave conservative, as well as labor front ventures, the kind of expert imprimatur that they felt they needed to change public policy. By the time that Boyle succeeded Eccles as education minister in
0: 1962, most LEAs had already
1: moved. Boyle was told by his civil servants that 90 out of 163 local education authorities had comprehensivization plans in the works, and only 20% of LEAs were sticking by principle to the 11 plus. Though Boyle has often been demonized by the new right as the traitor within the gates who sold out the grammar schools, This misses the point that the prime movers in educational reform were not in Whitehall or Westminster, but in a couple of hundred local authorities and millions of homes around the country, drawn from all political persuasions. If comprehensivization appeared increasingly inevitable from the mid-1950s, this did not mean it could or should have happened quickly. Implementation took about 20 years, from the first experiments in the mid-1950s to the mid-1970s, by which time most comprehensivization plans had been approved, leading to the situation today where over 90% of the state sector is represented by these schools. I'm I'm ignoring the fact that they rebadged comprehensives as academies, but um, non-selective schools um, still represent uh, 90% of the the state sector today. Throughout this period, the state sector covered 93% or 94% of the entire age cohort. Despite frequent predictions to the contrary, the independent sector has remained resolutely stuck at 6 to 7%. That is itself an interesting phenomenon, which I think kind of gets ignored in some of the debates, such as I see that Tristram Hunt has uh, reignited in the public prints. But comprehensivization was no more protracted in Britain than, say, in Sweden. The political problem faced by labor after 1964 was how to achieve the popular policy of abolishing selection without associating it with the unpopular policy of abolishing grammar schools. And the only way to do this was to persuade parents that comprehensives were the best schools. The evidence is that they were successful in doing so. As early as 1958, when only a bare majority of the electorate had ever heard of comprehensives, those who had heard of them favored them over the bipartite system three to one. By 1967, nearly three-quarters of those living in areas offering comprehensives, and 85% of those children actually in them favored them over the bipartite system. As always, the author of this particular survey commented, respondents were not voting against grammar education. They were voting massively against secondary modern education. In that same year, the conservative leader Ted Heath publicly asserted that it was never a conservative principle that children should be segregated in different institutions. In 1970, when the Conservatives returned to power, although they reversed the Labour government's request to local authorities to bring forward comprehensiveization plans, they made a conscious decision not to discourage them because, as the Education Minister, Margaret Thatcher, told Heath, it was difficult to establish how a child would suffer from the introduction of a comprehensive scheme, particularly as educational opinion, rightly or wrongly, was still strongly in support of comprehensive schools. And again, I I think this sums up the political discourse at the time, which was to refer to educational opinion, that is, the, the things that her civil servants at the, at the Department of Education and Science told her, rather than to refer to the elephant in the room, literally the elephant in the
0: room, uh, which was public opinion. Well, not literally. But <laughs> I, I knew all the
1: pens out there were already making a little note in there on their sketch pads. Comprehensivization was left to local authorities, who were then in the full flood of their plans. At this point, public opinion seemed strongly in favor of abolition of the 11 plus and of comprehensive schools as the best schools. A few, mostly conservative local authorities held referenda in this period to allow public opinion to settle the question. And in in each case, Gloucester, Barnet, Cardiganshire, Eaton and Slough, Amersham, in each of those cases, majorities were um, returned in favor of comprehensivization, ranging from four to one in Barnett, to 2 to 1 Neaton and Slough and Amersham. Not all of these LEAs accepted these verdicts, which is why there are still grammar schools in some of those places. But these were the marginal cases, the ones LEAs found most difficult. In most other places, comprehensivization proved not only uncontroversial, but popular. Thus it was that Thatcher, through no fault of her own, presided over more transfer from bipartite to comprehensive schools than any other education minister. There is a case to be made that this transition to universal secondary education, universal comprehensive secondary education, was more rather than less popular in Britain than in the rest of Europe. As a result in Britain, of its association with welfare state universalism, as opposed to more technocratic or bargaining transitions elsewhere in Europe, where elite selection in secondary education was taken for granted for longer. How, if at all, has the democratic discourse on secondary education changed after the period when comprehensivization was more or less complete, that is, uh, after the late 1970s? Political debate about education in this period um, has revolved around a set of issues, curriculum reform, standards, accountability, parental choice, that to some extent represents a continuity with the rising expectations of the post-44 period, but which also incorporates new themes of skepticism about the alleged permissiveness of 1960s culture and about the performance of public services, new themes that are associated with Thatcherism and the new right. These latter associations have led historians of education, who are almost all on the left, to characterize this period in nearly apocalyptic terms. The return of selection, the dismantling of the comprehensive system, the steady abandonment of the comprehensive ideal, even the Death of Secondary Education for All, that's the title of a book that was uh, written by one of these uh, left-wing educational historians um, about 15 years ago. My own account would emphasize the elements of continuity more than change. The new right itself represented some currents of continuity. Its very diverse cast of characters included frank advocates of the return to selection, but also advocates of comprehensive education who were traumatized by the permissiveness of the 60s yet sought to reverse it by means of standards rather than selection. And an entirely new element of market ideologists who weren't so concerned about permissiveness, in some ways they liked it, and for whom selection and comprehension weren't the main issues. New labor drew on a similar mix, though with fewer advocates of selection. Because comprehensivization had proceeded from the bottom up with working class districts going first, there were still some LEAs with strong middle class grammar school constituencies holding out for selection by the time the conservatives returned to power in 1979. Thatcher had by then undoubtedly registered and capitalized upon the growing skepticism about both the permissiveness of the 60s and even more so the performance of public services. She withdrew pressure on the holdout LEAs to convert, and many of them retain the bar system today, representing about 7% of the age cohort. But while public opinion in these holdout districts remained generally supportive of their existing system, so did public opinion in comprehensive LEAs. Attempts in the 1980s to, um, by conservative LEAs to roll back comprehensivization in Solihall, Redbridge, Wiltshire, and Berkshire were all stymied by united parent and teacher pressure. Apparently, while parent pressure was no longer mobilized against existing bipartite schools, it was still impossible to get parents to accept new bipartite schools. Perhaps another sign of skepticism not so much about public services as about politically motivated changes of any kind. In sharp contrast to the period of comprehensiveization as well, demographic and fiscal pressures were running against new schools, and LEAs had little appetite for more people that would require money they didn't have. The mainstream of public debate in both parties therefore focused on persuading parents that their children were being offered the best schools without requiring selection, which has generally remained throughout since the 1980s, the untouchable third rail of educational politics. Probably the most important policy decisions of the Thatcher governments were those involving curricula, which certainly represent continuity more than change, and indeed could be seen as putting the coup de grace to the bipartite system and consolidating a unitary system. First was the decision in 1984 to merge the two examination systems left over from the bipartite system, CSE and GCEO level, into a single GCSE exam at 16, which even right-wing critics have described as the triumph of the comprehensive principle in the curriculum. Then came the uh, move to draft the national curriculum. This had a more ambiguous pedigree. Curriculum had traditionally been left very much to local control, to the local authority, even to the individual school or teacher on the principle that central government in a liberal society should not be dictating on matters of individual conscience and belief. This decentralizing principle was one of the sources of uh, healthy vagueness in the Butler Act, which left so much in the hands of local authorities. Teachers have, of course, come to consider uh, curricular freedom a prerogative of their own, particularly in the 1960s, the golden age of teacher autonomy. Successive ways of educational reformers on both right and left to emphasized the need for more central control of curriculum in order to level up standards and improve the student experience, especially in a highly mobile society, starting with David Eccles, who in 1960 had regretted the failure of politicians to make inroads into what he termed resonantly the secret garden of the curriculum. If you talk to Department for Education civil servants today, as I do often enough, um, not as a historian so much as a representative of historians, uh, you'll find that that's just about the only piece of educational history they remember of, the secret garden of the curriculum. <laughs> the
0: subsequent rise of progressive educational methods in the 60s kept the garden not so much secret, as just simply sacrosanct,
1: ro- roped off from political control. However, the same forces that had been driving comprehensivization for a unitary system from parents seeking equality, and also from both employers and unions making economic arguments for more investment in education, encouraged both parties to undertake reform of the curriculum. No doubt local authorities and teachers' unions were right to deplore this as a power grant by the Education Department. It did violate this longstanding principle that central government should not dictate to local localities how they educated their children. But it was a power grant facilitated by demands for a modern unitary school system from parents. A 1979 survey showed that local authorities were not exercising any effective oversight on curriculum. And the Education Department stepped into a vacuum Seeking to organize a national consensus on a desirable framework for the curriculum. As the debate over the history curriculum amply demonstrated, I'm talking about the, the, the first history curriculum, the late 80s, there were risks entailed in opening the secret garden. It was a t- terrible mess, uh, that debate. But it was still possible in the 1980s to have a robust public discussion, uh, however messy, amongst parents and teachers and academics, civil servants and politicians. And to produce a curriculum that commanded a substantial degree of common uh, uh, cause around a desirable framework. Very different uh, from the experience of the recent debates over the history curriculum. Like the creation of GCSE in 1984, the drafting of the national curriculum between 1988 and 1995 is much more plausibly seen as the culmination of the process of comprehensivization than as the beginning of its end. And I think something similar can be said about standards. The language of standards employed with increasing assistance from the 1970s is another element of recent educational reform jargon closely associated with the new new right. It's seen as part of a conservative campaign to discredit comprehensive education. Excellence is taken to be a code word for grammar schools. But again, it's just as plausible, I think more plausible, to see the language of standards as bolstering rather than undermining public support for comprehensives. Since the 1950s, parents had learned to seek the best schools for their children. Initially, this meant grammar schools. Later, it meant comprehensive schools. The language of standards was therefore bound to be used by advocates of both grammar schools and comprehensives. The authors of the Black Papers, the notorious founding documents of the new right in education, which were published from about 1969 to 1975, the authors of those documents who were reacting against permissiveness in education and not always against comprehensive schooling per se, in fact, used the language of standards in both ways. Some felt, in the traditional way, that grammar schools were the only reliable bastions of excellence, others, acknowledging that a majority of the electorate probably favor some kind of comprehensive school, focused their energies on promoting excellence in comprehensives. Whereas the new right was understandably ambivalent about excellence in comprehensives, new labor was not. Tony Blair's leading education advisor, Andrew Adonis, didn't identify excellence, with the teaching practices of independent grammar schools, but devoted all his energies to transplanting them into comprehensives. The old labor policy of grammar schools for all. I've, I've been looking, combing through the works that i done, trying to find and use the phrase uh, grammar schools for all. I haven't quite got there yet, but I'm sure it's there. His Blairite counterpart, Alistair Campbell, who put the phrase box standard comprehensive in the circuit, was even more of a comprehensive stalwart, and for him, excellence was not something associated with one kind of school or another, but rather something at which all schools ought to aim. Both used the language of failing comprehensives, but this was hardly an attempt to delegitimate them. Rather, it was an attempt to meet rising expectations amongst parents. Adonis himself um, defined failure uh, in the 1990s as leaving school with fewer than two or three GCSEs. Today, he defines failure as leaving school with fewer than five GCSEs above a C grade. And that reflects his rising tide of expectation. As Alison Wolfe has argued, the language of standards in Britain differs from similar language elsewhere in Europe, focused on certification for all rather than elite selection. In other words, when, when the language of standards in Britain is about uh, raising standards for everyone, whereas in most of the, on the continent, it's still associated with old elite selection practices further evidence of the persistent importance of welfare state universalism in public attitudes to education here. Accountability is another uh, catchphrase of the post-70s period that's taken to be a new right synonym for selection. For new right champions of standards, the only way to measure educational quality was testing, and the publication of test results for individual schools or even individual teachers would promote competition between schools and drive standards. Accountability was thus primarily about exposing schools to market tests. As we've seen, the Education Department had done its best to shield bipartite schools from parental pressure in the 50s and 60s. Comprehensive schools were not at first much more exposed to parental pressure either. It was not only the curriculum that was secret, so were inspection reports and internal management. There were no parent representatives on governing bodies under the 1944 Act and many local authorities monopolized control of these governing bodies through the 1960s. In the 60s and 70s, there was mounting pressure from parents for both informal and formal participation in the running of schools. This was a different, more vocal form of parental opinion than we found in the 50s, but in many ways, a logical extension of it. It was, of course, part of a wider ethic of community participation, building in the 1960s and 70s, and it became effective from the bottom up, only retrospectively sealed by legislation. A study in the mid to late 60s found almost no parental representation on governing bodies. By 1975, the practice had become pretty general. It did not become statutory until 1979. Other forms of accountability, such as the publication of inspection reports required from 1983 and exam- examination results required from 1988, cannot be detached from this demand for parental involvement in schools. Like the language of standards, Accountability reflected both an assertion of parental involvement in schools and a distinctive new right demand for market tests. Indeed, the new right's populist successes here, as elsewhere, owed much to this dovetailing with well-established and non-partisan demands for popular participation, which were not necessarily connected to market ideology. I think that's a general conclusion, that we could draw about the impact of thatcherism across a wide range of uh, policy areas, that um, the way in which I think people don't perhaps give enough attention to the way in which Market ideology and demands for popular participation actually reinforced each other. A final demand of the new right for parental choice was in many ways the most controversial. In its extreme form, the voucher scheme, whereby parents were credited with the cost of a state education and could spend it anywhere they liked, including independent and other selective schools, parental choice was a means of restoring selection through the back door. Though it was also primarily for the new right. Just another way of introducing market mechanisms into the education system to drive out standards. But like standards and accountability, parental choice could be many things to different people. In the hands of new labor, it could be about embracing multiculturalism, offering parents the choice of schools oriented to particular faiths or other identities. In the hands of both parties, it could be about specialism, offering parents the choice of schools oriented to particular subjects or pursuits, technology, or the humanities, or art, music, and sport. Specialism itself was ambiguous with regard to selection. In theory, it could be used to restore the bipartite system by introducing academic specialist schools and vocational specialist schools. Keith Joseph talked about specialism in terms of differentiation, a heavy hint at a return to the bipartite hier- hierarchy. And some Tories liked to tease Labor about the S word, uh, which might mean selection, or it might mean specialist, or it might mean both. In the event, the conservatives couldn't do more than tease. They never seriously considered voucher schemes. For, for um, uh, most conservative secretaries of state, specialism always remained a matter of parental choice between types of school, not academic selection. This was even more the case for new labor, which saw specialism as a way to create a new type of all-ability state school, not a way of introducing selection at all. But the biggest problem with parental choice was it wasn't very popular. Parents wanted the best schools for their children, but they also wanted neighborhood schools to be the best schools, not some other school miles away. They much preferred parental voice to parental choice. The conservatives knew even better than labor that choice did not resonate at all with target voters. That's a quote from a uh, private conservative poll in, in the 2005 general election. And in both the 1997 and 2005 general elections, They soft-pedaled their ideological commitment to choice in favor of a more voter-friendly emphasis on standards, which no one could be against. Specialism has so far turned out to be something of a damn squib, a device whereby heads obtain extra funding for their schools, rather than significant criterion by which parents actually choose schools for their children. My my children went um, to respectively a technology college and a media college, and I could never tell the difference between them. They just happened to be uh, the neighborhood schools. Uh, which had chosen these specialisms as a way of squeezing some more money out of the uh, Department for Education. Well, to sum up, since the end of selection was settled in the 1970s, public debate about education has been dominated by a diverse set of issues curricular reform, standards, accountability, choice. The leaderships of all three governing parties have continued to steer clear of talk of selection. It's notable, for example, one of the liberal Democrats' few recent policy successes came when Michael Gove attempted to restore a two-tier exam at 16, a proposal which so little excited the Conservative Party that it capitulated to Nick Clegg's expostulations almost without debate. Emphasis has been placed instead on driving up quality in all state schools by market competition. On the whole, though not entirely, the right has done better in setting the terms of this public discourse than the left. <coughs> New right ideas about market competition have inspired new testing regimes, league tables, better information for parents about school performance, independent management of schools, and parental choice. The left has criticized most of these measures for aggravating social segregation and introducing selection by the back door, but it has had few alternatives to propose to capture the public imagination and improve the quality of state education. While correctly holding that privileged families do better in market competition, it counterposes to market mechanisms only alleged instruments of collective control, local authorities, teachers' unions, class consciousness, that have lost salience and public support. In doing so, it often finds itself doubting the ability of ordinary citizens to make decisions for themselves. When Shirley Williams proposed in 1977 to introduce measures for parental choice into the labor government's electoral program, Tony Benn wrote to her, to raise parental expectations in this way might lead to greater dissatisfaction and parental anxiety, and would certainly lead to a terrific pressure on local education authorities, on the ministers, and, of course, MPs as well. The assumption there on Tony Benn's part was that the last thing MPs wanted was more pressure from parents. Despite 20 years or more of rising parental expectations precisely on Labour's core constituency, the man in Whitehall still, in 1977, knew best. The left's best cards have been curricular. Though legislated by conservative governments, both the unitary GCSE exam at 60 and the national curriculum had been old labor proposals aimed at improving prospects for the disadvantaged and delivering quality education for all. These curricular reforms combine quality and equality in a compelling way. Other proposals from the left have tended to emphasize equality without meeting public demands for quality, such as the largely unsuccessful attempt to introduce banded admissions to ensure truly comprehensive intakes or renewed campaigns against the remaining grammar schools. In truth, however, neither the right nor the left have established a big idea for education to rival the crusade for the best schools for all that did capture the popular imagination between the 50s and the 70s. While politicians acknowledge that good schools and hospitals remain highly popular doorstep issues, neither market nor corporate nostrums to secure these things carry much conviction nowadays. It may be that privatization, if explicitly embraced by the conservatives after 2015, will be the spark that relights the real education debate. In the meantime, however, the consensus established in the immediate post-war decades behind a universal service without selection, but promising constantly improving provision for all, at least to 16, has weathered the ideological storms of the last 40 years remarkably well. And Britain remains, like most developed countries, committed to a universal, standardized, and rationalized education. That's, that strives, at least in public discourse, to give equal opportunities for personal development and socialization to all. Thank you.